All right, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church, and happy Mother's Day to the mamas in the house. Uh, we celebrate Mother's Day, but we're also celebrating womanhood in general, so if you're a woman, this is for you as well, and we actually have uh, gifts for all the ladies in the back on the round table, so make sure you do pick that up on your way out. It is really nice. It's nicer than you expect, and then the Trinity kids are making something for the mothers as well. Uh, we're going over the top. Just a reminder, Father's Day is next month. We have made a list. We'll send that out to you. Last week, we started a new series called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is uh, the phrase comes from the title of a book by uh, an author named Eugene Peterson. He wrote the book about 40 years ago. And he writes in the introduction to that book, one thing that's harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. It's not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel. It is terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in holiness. So that sort of sets the, the vision for what this series is about, a long journey, a long walk, uh, an endurance walk of faith. And uh, I don't have a good transition for this, but there's a Seinfeld episode. If you're, if you're maybe 30 or so and watch Seinfeld uh, when it was actually on or if you've streamed it, uh, called The Reservation. Uh, and so Jerry and Elaine go to the car rental desk and uh, Jerry says the name is Seinfeld. I've reserved a midsize. And the lady says, yes, I see your reservation right here, but I'm so sorry we're all out of cars. And he says, I don't understand. I made a reservation. The reservation is supposed to keep the car here. And she says, I know what a reservation is. I don't think that you do, what Jerry says. He says, if you did, then I would have a car right now. He says, so you know how to, how to take the reservation. You just don't know how to hold the reservation. It's really the most important part. Anybody can just take the reservation. And I, I thought of that because, it, as Peterson says, in our, in our country, in our culture, in our climate, uh, it's not that hard to get somebody excited. It's not that hard to get somebody interested, even in something uh, like the gospel, like Christianity, like a church. But it is incredibly difficult to actually hold the interest, to sustain the interest. It's not hard to get started on the walk of faith in Christianity. It's incredibly difficult to keep walking and to walk day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And I, I was at Starbucks this morning uh, and ran into a, a friend of mine named Ellis, who's a, a sweet older man. He was part of the, the founding group of a church in town called Christian Fellowship. And so he was asking me how we were doing. And I said, do you have any advice for us? Uh, he says, I, with, as I look back, my favorite stage was when we were 50 people meeting in a rented space. Uh, and this is, this is 40 years later. If for a while, it was one of the, the largest churches in town. I think it still is. Um, but he said, just keep meeting and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And so I thought that's pretty good advice for us as a, as a church as well as individuals uh, on this spiritual journey, especially in the midst, in the midst of a, an instant society where, where everything is on all the time. Everybody is moving quick. Everybody's busy. It's, it's a frenzied pace. How do we cultivate a life that goes the long haul? How do we plant a church that lasts 
for decades? What are the, what are the practices that we need to adopt and, and cultivate in our life for this long journey? And so the portion of scripture we're looking at that Lindsay just read from is called the Songs of Ascents. They are 15 psalms from 120 to 134, and this one we're in today is right towards the end of it. And the Israelites would sing these songs on their three times a year journey into Jerusalem. So they're called the Songs of Ascent because Jerusalem was the high point in Israel geographically. So all the trails leading to Jerusalem were all uh, more or less going uphill. It was an ascent. It was a, a climb. Uh, and the cover photo on your bulletin is actually uh, one of those trails that leads up towards Jerusalem in Judea. That uh, picture was incredibly difficult for me to get, but eventually I did find it online. That's my little joke. Um, but the, the 15 songs that we're looking at here are their songs along the way. Songs that would be, be sang from the villages and the tribes moving upwards into Jerusalem. Hey, Jack. And these, these 15 songs serve as uh, a sort of guide for us, uh, a guide for our long walk. It wasn't just the Israelites who were moving three times a year into the holy city, um, but rather our lives are a spiritual journey, a, a long trip as well. And so last week we talked about the fact that we are pilgrims. Our, our identity as God's people, uh, one of those aspects of the identity is that we are pilgrims. We're travelers. We're sojourners. We're journeymen. We're, we're on a long walk. The four other identities that we're going to look at in the next four weeks, uh, today we're looking at the fact that we are family, next week worshipers, and then servants, and then missionaries. So these are five identities that the Israelites bore and that we as God's people bear as well. And so just like last week, we're going to look at who we are, where we are, and then what we must do. So let's pause and pray, and then we'll get back into this psalm. Father, I thank you so much for your presence with us, that you are always with us, but you meet us in such a, a wonderful and a powerful and a profound way on Sunday mornings as we gather. And Father, I pray that you would, would do a deep work in our hearts, in our minds, even in our bodies as we are learning how to follow you, learning how to do this long walk of faith. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would would open our eyes, as the Psalms say, open our eyes to see wondrous things in your law this morning. And so we commit this time to you. We pray that you would use it to, to stir up our hearts, to make us more like your son, Jesus. Father, would you enable us to go the long haul as individuals and as a church? We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So first of all, who are we? The question of identity. And what we're looking at today is the identity of family. So to quote the classic R&B song, we are family. Everyone who has ever been born has been born into a family, at least a biological father and mother. And you don't choose your family, you are simply born into that family. Now, many families aren't just biological, but adoption works the same way. And that's true of the Christian faith. When we become Christians, when we put our faith in Christ and give our lives to him, we are adopted into the royal family of God. God becomes our father. Christ becomes a sort of big brother to us as we become heirs of the same inheritance that he has had throughout all eternity. And then all other Christians become our brothers and sisters. And so if you are a Christian, you are intimately connected to the church, the church worldwide, the church uh, eternal, the church throughout 
the ages. You can't be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church because the church is your family. Peterson writes, it's part of the fabric of redemption. No Christian is an only child. Now, this is good news for us as Christians. It's good news that we are family. It's easy to forget that it's good news. It doesn't always feel like good news, but it is. Now, our, our church family, like any other family, it's going to have uh, times of drama, times of dysfunction, times of stress, uh, but that's part of what it is to be family. And so the Israelites would sing this song towards the, the end of their 15 songs, probably because like on any uh, long road trip, they're starting to get each other's nerves a little bit. You know, they've been together for several days now. And so in verse one, they sing how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And so in the church, to remember our identity as family and to remember why it's a good thing, we need to remember that it's good and pleasant. It's good and pleasant to be in God's family. It's good and pleasant to, to live in community, to live together in unity. And the psalm gives us two different images, and both of them are a little bit unfamiliar, but images of the goodness of unity among God's people. So the first one is verse 2. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe. Now, this, this oil in, in Exodus, God gave instructions for the ordination of the priesthood. So God established the priesthood in Exodus. And the very first priest was Aaron. And so in this sort of ordination service, God had these instructions for establishing the priesthood. And Moses took this anointing oil and then poured it on Aaron's head. And it would run down his head and get into his beard and run down his clothes. And this became the tradition for any Hebrew priest's ordination. Uh, and so oils, oils have always been used to sort of enhance human life. Oils are used in, in cooking to bring out the flavor of things. Oils are used on, on skin to soften skin or, or to be used as a perfume. It's, oils are always used in some way or another to enhance life. And in the scriptures, oil is a sign of God's presence. So whenever we see the oil in the scriptures, it's, a, it's an indication of God's presence, of his nearness, of his blessing with his people. And so the priest that was now covered in oil at the ordination, he would continue to be covered in oil every time that he was doing his priestly duties. Every time he was out in the community, he would be anointed with oil before going out. And this is a way for the Israelites to understand who the priests were and that they were, they were special among God's people. They were representatives of God's very own presence in their midst. And so the Israelites would treat these priests with with love and with respect and with admiration. They would consider the priests, uh, their needs and their desires even above their own. Now, the takeaway from this is, is not that we need to treat our spiritual leaders and pastors today in the same way. That would be a nice takeaway, but that wouldn't be fully accurate. What's fully accurate, uh, according to the New Testament, is that Jesus is the true and final and ultimate high priest. So the priesthood of the Old Testament that Israel had for these thousands of years, it wasn't abolished, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's the great high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the lamb. He's the one that takes away the sins of the people. And then the priestly line, it hasn't been totally cut off. It's been expanded. So now we don't have priests in the same sense that Israel did, but we are actually all priests. Peter, one of the, the disciples who was closest to Jesus and also understood the Hebrew priesthood as well as anyone, 
He wrote this in 1 Peter. He said, like living stones, you also are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so this is maybe the most important thing to get this morning from this psalm, from this image, that every single one of us who trusts in Christ is now a, an ordained, anointed priest in God's house. And if that's true, if that's true of you, if you're a Christian, that means you are, in fact, an anointed priest over God's house. That means you are worthy of all the love, all of the respect, all of the admiration of those around you. That's how you deserve to be treated. And I think you feel that as good news because so many of us are, are looking for love, looking for respect, looking for admiration. And if that's true, the implication of it means that for all of us who are in Christ, everyone else is also made in God's image, also anointed, also ordained as a priest in God's house. And so everyone that you meet, everyone who is a child of God, is worthy of your love, worthy of your respect, worthy of your, your admiration. And it's why Paul says in Romans 12, to honor one another above yourselves. And so the message of this anointing oil is it's to treat one another with incredible love, incredible respect, to, to build and to maintain incredible unity among ourselves. Now, the second image is the dew in the morning, verse 3. He says the, the goodness of unity among God's people. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Hermon is it's the highest mountain in the Middle East. And so as far as the Israelites know, it's the highest mountain in the world. This is essentially like a reference uh, in our culture, we might say Mount Everest, just to describe something that's unbelievably tall and significant. And at high altitudes, if you've been camping, you know this, if you're up in altitude, when you wake up in the morning, uh, the dew is incredibly thick. It's far thicker the higher you go in altitude. And so if you're camping and you wake up at 9,000 feet, which is what Herman was, you're going to be covered in water. You're soaking wet. And in the Middle East, this was, this was a great picture for the Israelites because it's primarily flat, primarily hot. It's a dry desert. And so this image of, of dew, mountain do, which I only realized a couple days ago is probably where they got the name, but it's kind of creative if you think about it. But this, this mountain dew that, that arises every morning, it meant for Israel and for everybody in the Middle East, it was an image of, of freshness, of newness, uh, new life, uh, nourishing, flourishing. It, it was a way of, of reminding themselves of, of the expectation of life that comes every single day. And so the psalmists are singing that, singing that unity among God's people is like this morning dew falling on Zion, which is God's place or God's people. And what that means for us as, as Christians and what it meant for the Israelites is that we are to treat one another with a sense of expectation. That we are to, to expect the best out of one another. That we are to, to look to one another and think not what should be or what could be, but, but what is already there because this is one of God's children. We're looking for the best in one another. We're looking for signs of life. We're looking for signs of growth. 
We don't look for what's missing, what's lacking. We don't say, well, you could have done this better. You haven't texted me in this many days. I'm, I'm waiting for a community to show me this. Instead, it takes, it, it takes the pressure off of that, and it gives us a sense of initiative. It gives us a, an idea to, to treat one another with expectancy, with this idea that everybody is, is made in God's image, has been restored by God within the church, and we treat community far differently. And Peterson writes in the book, a community of faith flourishes when we view each other with this expectancy, wondering what God will do today in this one and in that one. When we're in a community with those Christ loves and redeems, we are constantly finding new things out about them. They are new persons each morning, endless in their possibilities. It's impossible to be bored in such a community, impossible to feel alienated among such people. And so between these two images, this is the, the vision of biblical community that we get. The oil communicates warm, priestly relationship. We're, we're gentle. We assume the best. We're quick to honor, quick to bless, happy to be in one another's presence. And then this do represents fresh and, and, and expectant life together. We expect something great from one another. We don't expect to be disappointed. We don't hold on to yesterday's grudges. And this is true in, in our own midst, in Trinity, but it's true also across all the churches and all the traditions. Uh, Christians, I think, are notoriously bad about getting along between different traditions and denominations and things like that. But the Bible says there's absolutely no room for that. Anybody in Christ is your brother, is your sister, is to be treated in this way. And so these songs reminded Israel of who they were, but also where they were, where they were going. And that's the second question. Not just who are we, but where are we? And we've talked about this a lot, so I won't go into it, but we are in the midst of a lonely, isolated society. And in a lonely and isolated society, we can forget that it's actually good news to be part of a family. And community is extremely difficult, but it's extremely difficult, especially in a society like ours. We can treat community uh, like I often treat going to the gym, where it's like the end of the day and I'm just looking for an excuse not to go to the gym. And so often at four o'clock, if I'm done with all my work, if I did bring my stuff, if there aren't any more phone calls to return, if there's literally nothing else, nothing else I can think of, then I will have to go to the gym. And often we can think of community that way. If I have gotten everything else done, if I simply have nothing on my calendar, if my kids are happy and healthy and well-behaved, if I've gotten my exercise, all the projects are done at home, then I will move towards other people. Then I'll move towards my church family. And I'm speaking from a lot of experience here. Uh, I think I've become a lot more introverted over the last 10 years or so. I, I tend to move, my, my natural inclination is to move, to move inward or, or to withdraw. Uh, any kind of, of stress, any kind of uh, busyness, anything that comes up in my life, my natural inclination is to withdraw, especially in the mornings, evenings, weekdays, and weekends is something that I've found. It <laughs> takes a lot of energy for me to move towards people. And you may feel like the same, the same way. Maybe you've, you've even tried community and it didn't go very well. Maybe you tried a church and, and were hurt there. Uh, a good number of people probably in this, in this room have been severely wounded by the Christian community. And that's not something we overlook, not something we take lightly. But it also doesn't mean that you don't 
give the Christian community a second chance. Because all of our pains, all of our hurts, all of our wounds happen in relationship. But that also means that all of our healing will also happen in relationship. You're, you're healing from, from the wounds or the trauma of a, of a bad Christian community experience. It'll probably come in Christian community. So as much as we want to find healing on, on our own, God often draws other people into our lives to bring about that healing. And so where are we as people, but where are we as a church? And I think there are a lot of ways right now we can be tempted to avoid true community in our, in our churches. Uh, one sort of, maybe it's just a pet peeve of mine, I call it forced fellowship. Uh, you've probably experienced this to certain degrees in a church. Maybe you've experienced it here. Um, but forced fellowship is when you're told to be in a small group. If you're just in a small group, then you'll have friends, then you'll have community. As long as you go to your small group two hours a week, you don't have to do anything else. That's your community. You've, you've checked the box. And then over years, we wonder why people aren't thrilled to be in their small group or why their relationships aren't thriving in Christian community. But forced fellowship and, and even small group participation, that's not the pinnacle of, of Christian community. That's, that's a step into Christian community. It, it's a great first step. And if you're a Christian, especially if you're here and, and you're not going to a group, it, you can't really say, well, I don't have community in this place. And so it's, it's important to go to group. I'm, I'm 100% for it. And yet at the same time, forced fellowship is not the goal of Christian community. It's, it's simply a step into the community. Now, the second one that I've seen in my own life and ministry as well is what I call professional fellowship, which is where we, we take a body of people, we take a church, and then we try to sort of turn everything into a professionalized relationship. And so if, if, you're, if you have a question, email your pastor. If you're lonely, go see this counselor. If, if your marriage is struggling, fill out this form. Everything becomes a, a professionalized relationship, and all the professionals are, are great. We need all of them. I use most of them. But the essence of Christian community can't be professionalized. Uh, and I, I've served in a church that moved towards a more and more professionalized model of ministry, and I don't think it served our people very well. You're not a problem to be solved. You're not a client to be managed. You're a child of God. You're a brother or a sister in Christ, your family. And so what we want to do here is cultivate the kind of community that, that involves deep friendships, involves mentoring, involves marriage care, involves all of these things within the community. And as we need to, we can get outside help, absolutely. But we want to be the kind of place that is so, so affirming, so encouraging, that you can find deep, deep community here. So who are we, where are we, and then lastly, what must we do? What are the commitments, what are the practices that enable this community to take this, this long obedience in the same direction? And so three things, which you're not surprised by. Third point has three things. Uh, I do that a lot. First of all, be here. Be, be here, be present. Where, wherever you are, be all there. I did a, a bike race uh, last fall, and it was 50 miles, and for 42 miles, I felt great, like great pace, was feeling good, well hydrated, and then I, it was out by the airport, the, the airport near Ashland, I made a turn, and then there's no trees out there, and it was like straight into the wind. The last eight miles were into the wind and uphill, and I had run out of water, there were no more of those water stations left, and I felt like I was dying. So there was this other guy, he and I had been sort of 
passing each other back and forth for the miles. Uh, and when he pulled up alongside me, I asked how he was doing, and he was like, I'm dying. And I was like, I died several miles back. I'm in purgatory right now, I think. But we agreed to, to finish the race together. Uh, and, and there was something about finishing with another person, even though we didn't talk. Um, it's not like the wind died down or it, it wasn't uphill anymore. I didn't borrow any of his water. But simply being with another person in something that was challenging, that was stretching me to my limits, made it so much easier. The, the mere presence of another individual is a source of encouragement. We're, we're created as relational beings, and we find encouragement simply by being in the presence of other people. I have a mentor that likes to say the most important thing you can give someone is your transformed and transforming presence. The most important thing you can give somebody is your, your Christ-transformed presence, to, to be yourself and to, to embody Christ and the Holy Spirit to them. And if we're brothers and sisters, we can, we can help each other along the way simply by being there for each other. And so first of all, be here. Second, be honest. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to be a better version of yourself or an idealized version of yourself. You can actually just be yourself and be honest. Be honest with where you're at, what's going well and what's not going well, what you're struggling with, what, what your hopes are, what your fears are, what your dreams are. If you've been hurt in community, this is a place where as you get to know people, you can talk about it. And we can remember why we can be honest. It's because God has saved us from our old way of life. God has saved us from our sin. And he hasn't done that based on what we ourselves have done. We haven't proved ourselves better than other people, and so he decided to allow us to be saved. The Bible says he just simply saved us through Christ. Not through our own works, not because we were so good at spiritual life or community, but simply because he reached down and saved us. We were dead, Christ made us alive. And so what that means is that all the pressure of, of posturing and, and presenting ourselves in a certain way, all that pressure is totally off. We can be honest with one another, and we should expect honesty, and we should try to cultivate honesty in our relationships. Because in a family, in a family where you're known and when you're loved, that's where, where honesty can thrive. And so be here, be honest, and then lastly, be humble. Humility is the single most distinguishing mark of our Lord. It's the virtue that he taught on the most, the one that he, he embodied more than any other. It's the mark of his presence and his followers. And there's a book by Andrew Murray, who is a South African minister from, from the 19th century. It's just called Humility. And he said, humility is the soil in which all other virtues grow. Humility is the virtue that, that gives birth to everything else. If you get and maintain humility, everything else in the Christian life will follow. The ability to, to go the long haul as a Christian, it begins with humility. And Murray says the test of Christ-like humility, it's not your humility before God, but it's your humility before other people. That's how we know if God's humility has taken root in us is if we show it to other people genuinely within our hearts, experience humility towards others. And so these images are followed in the last verse, the end of verse 3, by an incredible promise. And we'll finish there. The scriptures say, For there, which is unity among God's people, there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. 
And in, in the more technical tr translations, it, it comes out like this. God commands the blessing and ordains eternal life. And so this, this passage closes with a, a really strong command. It's really the only strong command in this passage, but it's not a command of what God is commanding us to do. It's something that God is commanding will happen when we develop, when we cultivate unity in our midst. The psalm is saying that when we devote ourselves to a, a family life as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we seek this kind of unity that's marked by, by the dew in the morning and by the oil running down the beard of a priest, when we cultivate that, God commands a blessing on our community. God ordains eternal life. To ordain is, is to speak into reality. God speaks eternal life into our midst. It's the language of blessing. God is commanding a blessing on his people. And so this is why this is such good news for us. That the Lord is with us, that, that he is our father. That we don't have to do life alone. That you're not an orphan, but you are connected to an eternal family. You've been ordained and anointed as a priest. And all those around you are equally deserving of your love, respect, and admiration. And every day we get a fresh start. Like the morning dew, we can look to one another with this active expectancy for what God might be doing in their life, what God might be doing in them, and how we can praise God as we look at them. And so the final thing is that God commands the blessing. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you for your word. We so thank you that you have commanded a blessing on your people, that you have joined us to your family. You have restored us. You have redeemed us through your son. Father, it's not easy to be a part of a family. It seems much easier and simpler to just do life on our own. But Father, would you call us back to this family identity? As a new church plant, would you enable us to, to thrive in our community? May we be people of peace, people of humility, people of depth, people that are looking for the best in one another, expecting something great in the other's presence. May we of all people not look down on anybody, and especially not in the church, regardless of tradition or, or any other thing, Lord. May we be the most generous, most loving gentlest people, Lord. Would you do this in our midst? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.